Welcome to another Climate Tech Podcast, conversations with the people trying to save us from ourselves. Do you know what solar punk is? Neither did I, which is why I reached out to Nate Crosser. Nate is a VC in sustainable food and agriculture who, in his spare time, writes about cool things like this on his Substack. In this interview, he contextualizes solar punk among some other punk movements and gives us some movie tips to get us on board. I reached Nate in Kansas. Nate, it's great to see you. Welcome to the podcast. Ryan, I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So you're a sustainable food and ag VC at Blue Horizon. And I counted, we actually have six active investments in common. And I really hope you know what you're doing because on some of these, (laughs) I don't feel like I always do, but that's pretty cool. There's lots of overlap, but I don't want to talk about investing right now because you wrote on LinkedIn, you posted an article that you'd written about solar punk. And it is the first time that I've ever seen that term. And I should say that I'm a 42-year-old man without Instagram. So, you know, it's not that I'm the most plugged in person in the world, but it caught my eye and I wanted to kind of like dive into it a little bit. And I thought rather than kind of going down the rabbit hole on online, I thought I would just send you a message and see if you want to talk about it here. And so that's why we're here. Cool. Well, yeah, super excited to talk about it. And I think you'll find by the end of the conversation, you are and have been a solar punk person for quite some time. Now you can <laughs> can put the label on it, maybe. Right on. So what is solar punk? So it's, a, I guess, a literary design movement, or you could say an aesthetic or a, a media genre, basically centered around imagining a future where people actually live in harmony with both each other and with nature. And at least in part, typically, that's in thanks to responsible use of technology uh, namely like green technologies like solar. So if you look at a technology and project kind of a future out in the way that sci-fi typically does. So let's look at like other analogous movements like cyberpunk, right? That looks at what does the future look like if we go really far down the path of digitization and you know cryptography and all of that stuff, right? What does that world look like? Another example would be steampunk an aesthetic around, you know, how do we use machines and what does society centered around that look like? Solar punk is asking us, what does a society centered around solar power and, you know, use of green technologies like fungi for food instead of industrial agriculture, like all these kinds of interesting both technologies and I would say cultural innovations or cultural rememberings that can make society better and, and flourish and, You know, I think it's important to also point out that this is not just like being a little bit optimistic. This is like being grandly optimistic. So Matt Flynn, who's one of the early writers kind of coining the term solar punk, challenged us to think about thinking in cathedral time, you know, a thousand year effort towards building a better world with some of the most advanced technologies and, you know, standing on the shoulders of multiple thousands of years of human philosophy and, and achievement, you know, what can we achieve as a society and as a world? And, you know, if we can imagine that, then we can build towards it. But if you look at the media landscape, almost all of the sci-fi and anything that looks at the world more than, you know, 20, 50 years in the future, it's almost always negative. You know, it's the matrix, it's Blade Runner, it's, uh, these worlds that you wouldn't want to live in, you wouldn't want your grandkids to live in, right? So it's, uh, I think, important for us to start writing more media 
that projects the world that we do want our grandkids to live in. And that's what solar punk is. And so if you place it kind of in the timeline or the spectrum with these other, I'll call them like dash punk movements. So you mentioned them already, steampunk, which I think we started to get to know through like Japanese anime and cyberpunk. So does it live kind of in opposition to these things or is it a, an offshoot of, of some of them? Is it newer? Is it like, is this a newer concept than those ones? So I think all of these punk movements are in essence countercultural. So they're not necessarily in reaction to each other, but they're in reaction to the mainstream culture. So solar punk is maybe a reaction to a lot of these sci-fi genres or just climate doomism or potentially corporate greenwashing about whether we can continue to consume in the same economic patterns and with the same technologies that we have now. Right. Solar punk is kind of a reaction to all of that. I think it's a much more desirable future than what is described in like cyberpunk, which is maybe the most popular punk ideology. I think most people, when you ask them, would rather live in a, a verdant world than a digital one. Right. They don't necessarily want to plug into a video game, even if it is very immersive, but they would be very happy to, to plug into an off grid farm community. Right. So maybe a bit of reaction to cyberpunk as well. And I don't know, this whole movement is probably 10 to 15 years old. We're the first blogs that were explicitly calling out solar punk that I can find. But, you know, if you look back to Art Nouveau, some of the design elements have been around for decades, if not longer. So, you know, like any literary design movement, there's threads. You could look back probably all the way to Plato and, and find some of this stuff, right? I'm interested kind of in the psychology of this as well, because as you say, this has kind of a more verdant, it has a more optimistic future than kind of the, the cyberpunk, you know, and the matrix and all of that kind of thing. I wonder, you know, what are your thoughts about how that drives our actions today? You know, so are we going to be kind of, you know, scared straight by the matrix to consume less and, and work towards a greener future? Or do we work more when we have this kind of picture of hope and, you know, and opportunity in the future? And, and does that drive us more so? Mm. Yeah, that is a great psychological question. And I think it depends on the individual, right? Are you the person when you're playing sports that wants to be encouraged by your coach or yelled at by your coach, right? What's going to make you perform better? And everyone's different and everyone needs both. I would say we've been very heavy on the spectrum of cautionary tales and and those serve a really important purpose, right? So if you look back to seminal works like Orwell's 1984 or Animal Farm or Huxley's Brave New World, like that really cautions us to avoid fascism and like overuse of drugs and these things, right? In society. And, and that is really important. But then it's like, well, what's the alternative? It's you need, uh, you know, thinkers and designers who can help us think about what's the alternative to 1984 other than just more of the same. So I think you definitely need both. Interesting. Yeah, because if we only see what we don't want, then we don't have a picture of what we do want kind of in the future. So this gives us at least some kind of maybe blueprint that we can work towards. And some of the stuff's already kind of panning out, right? You wrote, for example, that cultivated meat first showed up in a sci-fi novel in 1897, which is super cool and maybe also not surprising. And cultivated meat is slowly making its way to the market globally. I've even had two cultivated meat founders on this podcast already, which, you know, this is episode like 20 from Magic Valley and Biocraft Pet Nutrition. Are there any 
any other kind of trends that you've seen from literature start to pop up or where you're like, aha, this is starting to happen now? Yeah, certainly it happens all of the time. Life certainly imitates art. I think it was Atwood who said that, right? And if you look at, what was it? The, one of the first few movies, I think probably a silent film was The Man on the Moon, right? About somebody going to the moon. And what was it? Probably a hundred years later, we actually have people landing on the moon. You have to think that that plants a seed in someone's mind or in the, as what Le Guin would call the the social organism, like that idea gets planted and carried into the social organism. And yeah, I think we see it all the time with some of the spaces that we look at and invest in, in terms of food and agriculture. So I think fungi, for example, is an area where people are really excited about what the long-term future of fungi could mean for society, how we can use this technology, this domain of life that's been around for much longer than humans, and how can we kind of co- adapt with it to help solve some of the biggest challenges around food, around construction and you know, plastic alternatives, and how we can live symbiotically with those organisms by having them consume our waste, for example. I'd, there's probably lots more examples we could go into here as well. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to. On the topic of fungi, Nathan Palmier will join us in a couple of weeks on the podcast to dive into that. And we're also going to have the winners from The Future is Fungi in November on the podcast. I think we're just kind of scratching the surface on what that can mean to us for nutrition, materials, medicine, and more, right? Uh, remediation of waste and everything. So it feels like that's very much kind of just at the precipice right now. And you talk about it as being kind of like a literary and artistic movement. I wonder if you can talk a bit about some of the canon, you know, from literature, from music, uh, from film, even that got you interested in the genre and that you would recommend people to check out if they're curious about it. Yeah, I think the closest thing we're going to get to canon in this space, in my opinion, are the films of Hayao Miyazaki, Studio Ghibli, uh, Castle in the Sky, for example, or Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind are really excellent examples. Most of the books, especially I think it's The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin are really excellent examples of solar punk. One that probably everyone has seen is the movie Black Panther. Wakanda seems like a super solar punk place to be. But yeah, the, yeah, I, I don't know if there's really even a canon yet. I think we're still building that. It's I think we're on the verge of a maybe a mainstreaming of this movement, but I think we're still really we're we need to build that canon. You say that we're on the verge of mainstreaming. What indicates that? What are you starting to see? Where is this popping up? Are people dressing in a solar punk way? What does that even mean? I think I got interested in this idea five, 10 years ago. I don't really know. I think I approached it initially through an interest in like techno guyanism, which is this really just wonky technological idea. But then on the other end of the spectrum, I was also interested in like permaculture and these kind of two worlds collide in the world of solar punk. And so, yeah, I've been following it for a little bit and it just feels like we're starting to see it move from the blogosphere to more mainstream pickups. So there's now actual solar punk named venture capital firms. Representative AOC shouted out solar punk in a recent speech. We just saw a crowdfunded solar punk video game. 
there's a subreddit now there's like you know you look up solar punk on spotify you find 20 playlists so it's a word that's gotten out i'm not really quite sure why and is it mostly gen z yeah is it gen z is it teenagers where you know is it us or is it kind of i mean maybe it's coming from japan where there's like a, a big tradition of the of steampunk and everything like that yeah i don't know that's a great question i would imagine it's it's more like yeah us Japanese, South Korean, some of these more like technologically advanced and progressive societies where it's really caught on. But, you know, like I work with a lot of European colleagues and they're super enthusiastic about these concepts. So I think it has yeah, global appeal. And uh, to your question about wardrobe, I guess probably the most solar punk thing that you could wear would be what you already have or stuff from a thrift store, right? Like, Maybe we can get into this later, but I, I don't think it should be like a utopian appeal to infinite consumption. I think there's also needs to be cultural technology in terms of what our expectations are. But I mean, th there also are like really cool material science companies out there like Pangaea that are creating, to the extent you want new clothes, like really awesome sustainable materials from fungi or algae or recycled products, or, you know, it's just designed to last a lot longer. So there's a lot of interesting material science work as well. So I shouldn't just rush out to the Patagonia store and, and toss that on and call myself a solar punk. <laughs> well, I don't, maybe. I mean, Patagonia like stands by their products long term. And the, yeah, so I would say, yeah, Patagonia is probably up there. All right. OK, for a brand, then maybe you mentioned Adam Flynn before, who's a solar punk researcher who expressed concern also that solar punk could be co-opted for greenwashing, basically. I wonder what you think about that. And have you seen any of that? What does that look like? What should people be on the lookout for? Yeah, he's I'm absolutely right. There is a risk that we continue to just believe what the corporations tell us and what we want to hear and what the politicians say that we can just kind of continue on as is and technology will basically sort things out. Technology can certainly help us sort things out. And we probably can't sort things out without technology, right? But we need to be also updating our culture and um, really thoughtful about how we implement these technologies and need to maybe make sure that they're incentivized properly, et cetera, right? So I think there's definitely a risk where this just becomes an appeal to infinite consumption through technology. And, you know, yeah, like I said earlier, this is not an appeal to utopia where everything is easy and nothing hurts. Like I would imagine in a solar punk world, people are having a relationship to the land and you know, live in communities where there's people help each other out and aren't just playing video games all day or doing exactly what they want at all times. I just hard to imagine that being, at least in my solar punk vision, that's not a society that we should work towards. That's the society of like Wally, -E, where people just sit on their floating chairs and like make the robots do everything. And I don't really know what they do. People do. And in terms of things to look out for, so Chobani has actually made a really beautiful advertisement that they put on YouTube. Just look up like solar punk Chobani and you'll see it, it. It depicts basically a group of family or friends sitting around a table, sharing a meal together with solar panels in the background and like floating blimps and like they're basically on a farm and you can see all this technology integrated into the farm and there's like happy cows in the background and whatever and like that's a really beautiful image that they conveyed but like 
they're also doing it to sell industrial yogurt. So for like industrial dairy products, which have a lot of harm associated with those products. So there's like, you know, you appreciate that they did that, but also be skeptical. That's not really the world that the most industrial dairy is ushering in. So I think we should always remain vigilant, especially here. It's almost a bit of a catch-22 trying to spread movements like this. I mean, movements generally are are being spread on platforms like X and Instagram. And yet these are platforms that live on promoting products, basically, and you know, live from consumerism. And so the the algorithm basically <laughs> exists to push products on that. And so it could be like a bit of a cannibalistic way to push this movement. Well, I think any literary movement, design movement should be grassroots. It should come from artists and writers and designers and everyday people and definitely not be pushed down by large corporations or, you know, Hollywood establishment or whatever, right? I think it's going to well up just like any any of these other punk movements have. True, but I'm wondering even, you know, as artists and writers and activists, like pushing that message through these platforms that find ways to monetize it. It's like, you know, it's, um, we're a long way from zines and even blogs, right? Where blogs were independent and everything kind of lives on these platforms. So it almost feels like there's some work we need to do to just decouple these types of things also so that we can get pure messages out there that aren't then, you know, it's almost like the algorithm is going to greenwash things for them, (laughs) for us. Yeah, I mean, I... I think that's a really great point that you make. There is some one example I can think of is there's some movement towards analog publishing again, which if you think about it, it's like, okay, well, we're cutting down trees to create paper, or maybe it's recycled paper. Maybe that's not a good thing. But to the extent that this kind of media can inspire people to really engage with the media and slow down and get off some of these platforms that encourage consumption and are always pelting you with ads, like Maybe that's a trade-off that we want to take in that one example. But yeah, I mean, I also don't want to make it seem like solar punk is anti-digitization or anti-internet, right? Like there are really amazing affinity groups of people on places like Reddit where you can engage in really rich conversation on solar punk topics or whatever topic you want. And I think those are amazing tools because depending on where you live, you're probably not having those kinds of people right around you. So obviously there's the good and the bad. Yeah, I mean, I even think, you know, we might look back at the 2000s with blogs with, you know, people had independent blogs that they hosted themselves as kind of like this, this glorious age of independent thought, right, where nobody can delete your post or your comment or advertise against it, basically, without kind of your knowledge or consent. Yeah, I mean, there's like Substack has gotten really big again, right? Like people don't necessarily trust institutional media, but they can trust an expert on US-China relations who's got to post a weekly newsletter, right? I think that's a really encouraging development. Yeah, indeed. And is that the best place to reach you? You have a Substack, right? I do. Yep. It's called Fifth Industrial. It basically highlights some of the interesting technologies that I come across in my work in venture capital and just Wikipedia surfing, et cetera, that I think can help solve some of the ecological and maybe cultural issues in society. So. It's usually like a landscape of a different technology area, like like cellular agriculture or plant cell culture or material science innovation areas, things like that. But yeah, the last one was a article about solar punk. So you can kind of read all my thoughts there. 
I'll post a link to your Substack and also to the books that you mentioned uh, in the show notes. And I wonder, just as a, a last question, you know, some of the the movies you've already mentioned: The Matrix, Terminator, Blade Runner, Dune, which are kind of you know not maybe the solar punk future, but the kind of cyberpunk or kind of these more dystopian futures. Can you recommend a movie or or something? You mentioned a couple earlier, but um, you know, what are your go tos for solar punk? Yeah, I would say in terms of a film, Studio Ghibli is unbeatable. I just I love those films. Pretty much any of them are going to have some of these themes. But like I said, Nausicaa, Castle in the Sky are really excellent. I would also say I'm reading Always Coming Home by Ursula Le Guin right now for the first time, which basically depicts a post-apocalyptic neo-indigenous Napa Valley, which is somewhere that I used to live. So it's really interesting to hear the take of this absolute master who she lived in Berkeley and probably spent a lot of time up in the valley and to hear her take on what that society could look like about a hundred years in the future has been really fascinating. Okay. Awesome. So yeah, I realized I already asked you that earlier on, but uh, it doesn't hurt. And again, I'll put links to those in the, in the show notes and I'm looking forward to checking them out as well. Cause I haven't seen any of those. Nate, thanks a lot for joining today. Yeah, this was really fun. Glad to be here. Thanks for listening to another climate tech podcast. It would mean a lot if you would subscribe, rate, and share this podcast. Get in touch anytime with tips and guest recommendations at hello at climatetechpod.com. Find me, Ryan Grant Little, on LinkedIn. I'll be back with another episode next week. Bye for now. This episode is supported by Grizzle, B2B content to create and capture demand. I first met Grizzle's founder, Tom Watley, five years ago at a conference in Dublin. I was so impressed that I signed a deal with him to do all my software company's content that same evening at the pub. Remember that, Tom? Um, kinda. And they're still doing it two years after we sold the company because the new owners love Grizzle as much as I do. If you sell B2B, book 30 minutes in Tom's calendar at grizzle.io slash climate. That's G-R-I-Z-Z-L-E dot I-O slash climate.